This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with Dr. Sarah Kunz about her book titled Expatriate, Following a Migration Category. It's just come out in 2023 from Manchester University Press. And this is a really interesting book, um, asks a bunch of questions. Who are expatriates? How are they different from other migrants? Why do we care about these distinctions? And additional ones like how do we study this how do we think about studying this uh the book it looks quite small and packs quite a punch um goes through these questions and more with lots of really interesting methods and thinking about methods um so as you can probably tell i got a lot from this book and so sarah i'm very excited to welcome you to the podcast to tell us more about it well thank you so much for having me today i'm really excited to be talking to you today before we get into the details of the book itself, could you maybe start us off introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure, of course. Um, so I'm currently a lecturer at the University of Essex. And um, before I started in Essex, just about five months ago, I was based at the University of Bristol for four years. And before I was at the University of Bristol, I was at UCL in London doing my PhD on the category expatriate. And that's really where this book originates. Um, so I um, have been studying migration, topics such as racism, um, gender, you know, inequality, social inequality, uh, my whole career, so to speak, and also throughout my education. And I've always been interested in um, forms of privileged migration, as I call them. Um, and I think that interest really does have a bio biographical background as well, because I was a migrant myself. I lived abroad um, at various times in my life, and I realized that I was never called a migrant, right? And then I started studying migration at um, at university, and I also realized that a lot of the, um, you know, migrants or case studies or um, sort of research I was exposed to in my studies didn't really attend to privileged forms of migration as much, and I couldn't really find myself in there. So I became interested in how certain forms of migration really aren't studied as much and aren't talked about as much 
in the framework of migration. And I think that's the sort of background to this to this book. And then I came to the UK. So I moved to the UK. And I think I can't quite remember when it was, but that's when I first came across the term expat, expatriate, because being German, we don't really use that category much, right? It's not a German term, and we don't really have an easy equivalent to that category. So I came to the UK, and I remember um, doing my master's thesis at, at the LSE at the time. So I was thinking about what to study, and I was like, well, that's interesting. Wherever I've been abroad, I've been these expert communities, and, you know, um, they have these really, you know, interesting dynamics, but I haven't really been studied so, so much. So I, so I did research on that, and that really then turned into uh, an interest in the category itself and the history of the terminology and the politics, because obviously it's a really contentious term, but it's also just a, such a diverse term and really surprising one. And so I, I became interested in it, and that's really what started me off. And so I did my PhD on the category expatriate, and I'll talk a bit more in a bit, but I then continued doing research here and there after I'd finished a PhD and then decided to publish my research into a book and, you know, rewrote the whole thing, did some more work, and yeah, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so you've mentioned already this idea of the category expatriate. It's in the title um, and you've mentioned it. And I think this is something I found really interesting sort of conceptually or methodologically. Um, so can you tell us more about kind of what can we learn from studying migration categories as categories rather than maybe the more common thing of studying migrants themselves, whether or not we call them expats? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's a really great question. And I should probably off, uh, start off just by saying that I'm obviously linking to a really long tradition of uh, sociological and other social science research into social categories. Um, so, you know, social categories um, have been studied in all the different, you know, disciplines in the social sciences. And um, we know that social categories are embedded in power relations. So um, whether you think about, you know, the, the gender categories that we all live in and buy, or whether you think about um, categories such as racial categories or, you know, nationality as a social category, or whether you think of employment categories, you know, all of these categories that we use every day and often use really unthinkingly and that are absolutely natural to us in, in some ways or in many ways are, you know, socially constructed, if you like, and they're a product of, of society in many ways and are not necessarily rooted in any sort of essence or in any sort of biology. And obviously that's a well-accepted and, you know, well-researched fact. And I think that's really the where my interest originated. And then coming to migration, Migration is a hugely politicized topic, um, and it's become ever more politicized, I think, over the last decades. Um, and you can just see that nowadays, you know, migration um, makes or, you know, breaks relationships, it uh, decides elections, you know, it, um, it is such a hugely important topic. And I just started to realize that a lot of, I think a lot of social strugg struggles were kind of carried out on the terrain of migration that really had actually very little to do with what we might think about as migration statistically or legally speaking, right? So when you think about the category migrant, I think we'll get back to that, but it's not even a legally defined category in many countries. It's also not a coherent statistical category. So statistically or legally speaking, there often is no migrant as such, right? But yet we talk about migrants as if they were this kind of you know, obvious, uh, obvious thing, you know, obvious group of people. 
And I think as the more I started thinking about it, the more I started realizing that a lot of debates that are supposedly about migration are really also or mainly even about other things. So they're about, um, you know, who belongs to us? You know, who are are we? You know, who do we want to be as as a social imagined community, if you like? And, but also, um, sort of, there are a lot of times they're, they're quite racialized, and we'll get back to that. But they, you know, racist distinctions or racist arguments nowadays are often made um, on the terrain of migration. And so, uh, you know, thinking about and learning about these sort of issues more broadly, I then obviously came with my, you know, interest in privileged forms of migration and my realization, growing realization that privileged migrants were often excused from that category and came kind of couched in other terms. And so I thought about how interesting it is to study those who might, you know, be defined as migrants statistically, depending on which definition we use, but really aren't referred to um, as migrants in public debate, but also often don't self-identify as migrants, right? And so basically to look at these kind of implicit others of the category migrants. And that's when I came to the category expat, I suppose, and which had been, you know, uh, was was debated more and more as I kind of um, came to this topic as well. But basically, I think that migration is broader than migrants, right? And I think it's really dangerous, actually, to think about migrants as, um, you know, a, an obvious category or an obvious group of people that, you know, we can include or exclude or let in or, you know, keep out. And I also think that it's um, really interesting and it often disappears from view to think about how migration categories are constructed, not just by the state, you know, in, in its immigration law, if you like, or in kind of its surveys, but they're constructed by, by corporations and by cultural productions and by, you know, all of us in everyday life. And we all kind of produce migration categories and use them to make sense of our world. And I think that's just a much broader a field of research and it's it's really interesting to explore the way that that works discursively but and also how that links of course to material inequalities um, that define our societies and our societies across borders um, and to just think about the politics of that um, I think I'll yeah I'll leave it at that did then was that kind of a useful introduction yeah I think that makes a lot of sense um, and gives a very good taste to um, some of the discussions that obviously are much more in much more depth in the book for listeners um, who want to continue diving into um, those chapters of your work. Um, but the book is not just about thinking and theory. Uh, there's also some really interesting case studies that you bring in to kind of think about this social construction of categories and the politics of them in sort of some really practical examples. So could you maybe introduce us to the sort of three research sites and explain why you chose those particular three? Yes, yes, of course. And oh my gosh, it was such a difficult choice. Um, I remember, you know, sitting in my supervisor's office and having a list of at least, you know, seven sites that I really wanted to research and I had to narrow it down and it was a very difficult um, decision. And I, I mean, that just means that I think there's a lot more scope for research on this topic. But yes, I chose three sites and the reason I did so, should maybe I should tell you a little bit more about my methodology first. So I use the term following, and obviously that's also in the title of the book, and I think it might not make so much sense until you have actually read the book. But following is a sort of ethnographic um, tool, if you like, or methodology of, um, you know, I guess ethnography or ethnographic research traditionally would be this kind of um, 
locales that very match that kind of closed communities, right? But then um, in the context of a globalized world, in the context of an increasingly mobile world, um, ethnography has become, you know, uprooted and mobilized, if you like. And so following has been seen as a really, or has been used as a really useful strategy to do sort of transnational multi-sided um, ethnographies. And people have followed money, for example. People have followed commodities to study, um, you know, the, the global capitalism, the global capitalist system, if you like, and production chains. Uh, people have followed all sorts of things. And I then came across um, research that used, you know, following to follow categories and to look how categories operate in different sites and across contexts. And that's then what I wanted to do. And so I thought it would be really useful to follow the category expatriate to sites where it was a central organizing category, right? So where expatriate was a really key term. But I wanted to go to different sorts of sites. So the first site I chose was um, Nairobi, <laughs> an expat city, uh, quote unquote, if you like. So um, Nairobi is, you know, one of these um, big metropolis, um, a really a cosmopolitan city um, conceived, you know, through migration, really, and like built through migration. Um, of course, Nairobi is the capital of Kenya, I should add. And um, people always told me, you know, Nairobi is a perfect place to study expats. And it's such an expat hub. And, you know, you've got uh, the United Nations headquarters. You've got a lot of, you know, um, international organizations that are charities that have uh, the headquarters, their regional headquarters. You've got big corporations. More recently, Nairobi has been kind of touted as a tech hub. And that already gives you a sense of who's considered an expatriate, right? The, the example I've just given. But then I thought it would be really interesting to go to a city such as like Nairobi, and just follow the category in that city and look at what it creates. So not just say, okay, you are an expert, I'm going to study you, but to go there and see who considers themselves an expatriate, who's referred to by others as expatriates, which kind of places and spaces are narrated as expat spaces. What are sort of mobilities across the city and within the city does the expatriate narrate? What does it render invisible in that city? What sort of relationships does it render invisible? Um, which experiences does it, does it highlight in a city such as Nairobi? So how does a category become spatialized and sort of used to create identity and community in diaspora space? And that's what I wanted to do in Nairobi. So my second side was um, uh, a, an archive in the Netherlands and they called the Expatriate Archive Center. And I first came across them on the internet, really. And it's a really beautiful little archive. It's not that small anymore, it's growing, but it's an archive of, you know, as the title says, of expatriate um, social history, life histories. And so I was interested um, to understand who this archive considers an expatriate. So whose stories does it archive and why? And how does it, you know, construct this or use this category expatriate to create social history. And that, of course, links to, you know, a whole bunch of history um, that thinks about archiving as not just a neutral um, activity, but a political activity, right? By deciding what becomes archive, we um, archive, we, we create history as much as that we document it. And archives are really uh, active participants in, in the production of memory, right? And in a political production of memory as well. So I went to the Expatriate Archive Center um, with a dual strategy, really. So I did research in the archive and I used their collections and they were really, really interesting. But I also traced the emergence of that Expatriate Social Archive itself as an institution. And I looked, I did a sort of, um, I took almost an ethnographic approach to doing research in the archive. So how is that category 
constructed, you know, and how is it used? And that was my second site. And then my third site um, was a sort of, I don't know if you could call it a site in the, in the traditional sense, but um, it was International Human Resource Management Literature, which is quite a mouthful. And in a book, I usually use the abbreviation, um, uh, you know, IHRM. But um, expatriates um, have been studied for the most part, not in migration studies, as you might think, but in, you know, international human resource management literature. And it's interesting. So I, I wanted to know what expatriate means in that literature, you know, how does that literature define expatriates and what does it study? How does it study it? And how does it sort of construct the category expatriate through the way it becomes known? So uh, it's a very, you know, um, it's an approach to looking at literature as knowledge production, you know, um, that, that, that roots in um, post-colonial studies and subaltern studies and critical archiving literature as well. And um, I also conceived of that literature almost like an like an archive, or I conceived of it as, as an archive that tells you about a social change, that tells you about the sort of social context in which that category expatriate became used. And it's a really, really interesting story. I actually think it leads you to, you know, post-war um, US-driven corporate globalization and the way that the category expatriate was really kind of repurposed, if you like, in this particular context and kind of became incorporated in the business context in the US context. Um, so that's a really long answer to your short question of my three sites. So it's Nairobi as an expat city. It's the Expatriate Archive Center as an archive of expatriate social history. And it's international human resource management literature as, um, as an academic knowledge that has used the analytical category expatriate. And so I went through all of these different, all of these three sites with slightly different methodologies and slightly different approaches and tried to understand the, the history and politics of the terminology in, the, in those contexts. So I think that's a great way of helping our listeners understand why I said this book packs a punch. Um, Despite being not very many pages long, um, it really gets rather a lot done through these really interesting research sites and examinations um, within them, which unfortunately we're not going to have the time to do justice to every argument um, in the book. Um, And in the vein of thinking about sort of the criticality of the questions that we ask and the lenses that we bring to things, um, one of the arguments I'd like to pick up, given how the word migrant and the word expatriate often are used in sort of Anglophone news media in particular, the angle um, I'd like to pick up is, of course, how can we think about the work that the category of expatriate as a term is doing when it comes specifically to race and racial categories? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a really big question. And I I will try to do justice. <laughs> and I think before I go there, I just want to clarify um, two things. And the first thing is that uh, I understand, of course, race as a social construct, right? So uh, racial categories are social categories. And the way that racism, because really what, what creates race is, is racial thinking, is racial ide- ideology and racism. The way that racism operates is um, that it draws on other social categories and discourses and reifies them, essentializes them to produce inequality, justify inequality, really, to give you a really sort of, you know, simple definition, I suppose. But um, racial ideology flexibly employs, you know, visible and invisible criteria, criteria like skin color, but also, you know, blood, 
um, ideas of blood. Um, it uses bio biologizing pseudoscience. It uses cultural, um, you know, cultural markers. It uses common sense. So um, racism really is a really, really flexible ideology. And uh, I really like some of the ways that people have termed it. So Barbara Fields, I think it was called, called race a promiscuous critter. And Goldberg, um, you know, one of the main theorists of, of racism and race, said that conceptually race is like a chameleon. It is parasitic in character. It insinuates itself into and appropriates as its own mode more legitimate forms of social and scientific expression. So race really is not a thing, right? Race is not a new, it's not, it's not an obvious reality, a reality out there. So racial ideology has to draw on other social categories to realize its um, inequalities that it, you know, it's, um, uh, and modern inequalities, it's, it's discrimination, it's violence that it often justifies and um, always justifies and uh, perpetuates. So I think that gives you an idea of how, of how I think about race and racism. And so thinking about migration, I've said earlier that migration nowadays is so politicized, it is so heated. The interesting fact is, and that's where my research really started off, and I, I fear, think, I think about expatriate um, in the context or in relationship to the category migrant. And um, I don't do that throughout the book, but I think more recently, in more recent years, expatriate really has begun to work together with that category migrant, even if, if often through their very separation, right? And so both expatriate and migrant don't have, you know, a commonly accepted sort of... Um, uh, clear definitions and I think that comes as a surprise really because if you look at expatriate in the dictionary sense it is just anyone that you know if you look at the Cambridge dictionary I think it was Cambridge that defined the expatriate as anyone that lives abroad you know in a country that isn't theirs if you look at human international human resource management they have a much more narrow definition of expatriate as an intra-company transfer in a corporation but then also not every intra-company transfer only those moving from a particular context but you know that's that's a different argument so and when you think about expatriate as it is used it often doesn't conform to these uh, definitions or to many of the other definitions that are out there and in my research i've traced a lot of them right so for some people expatriate is a uh, the quintessential temporary labor migrant. For many others, especially in the US context, expatriate is someone who moves abroad, you know, semi-permanently potentially, but doesn't give up their citizenship. Expatriate in the legal sense really is only a term, legal term, I think, in the US context, where it means giving up your citizenship, right? So to expatriate means to give up or to be stripped of your citizenship. And that's a very different meaning than the social meaning of expatriate, who often is someone who holds on to their citizenship, you know, while living abroad. So you can see that expatriate is not an easily defined category. It is polysemic. It has multiple meanings. And I think that's maybe more easily accepted. But the, the thing is that migrant is just as polysemic, and I think that often gets hidden because migrant is the supposedly neutral technical category that we all use. But when you think about the UK context, oh, let's think internationally. There's no, no common, you know, there's no common definition of the migrant. The United Nations um, recommended a definition of the international long-term immigrant as anyone who moves. Uh, leaves their usual place of residence for at least a year. So technically, a British person, British-born person who has lived abroad most of their life and moves back to the UK will be counted as an immigrant in the UK. They'll make it into those statistics. Um, but then 
you know, there's other definitions of the migrant, um, such as someone who holds a foreign citizenship um, or someone who has been born abroad. And all of these definitions are used, for example, in the UK in different surveys. So if you look at the Labour Force survey, if you look at, you know, the um, Office of National Statistics, if you look at the passenger survey, they use different definitions of the migrant. And legally speaking, the migrant is not a category. You only have people subject to immigration law. Um, and for example, Europeans have kind of moved in and out of that category. So long answer short, these categories are both highly polysemic. And it is really, I think, through that polysemy that racism often works and comes to work and can work so effectively. So there's been plenty of research by now that shows that categories like migrant are racialized. Um, so it's it's a bit more obvious when you think about words such as failed asylum seeker or you know economic migrants who are uh, often associated with people from a particular background but the micro the category migrant itself has become racialized and that racialization has changed over time so uh, in the 1960s researchers in the uk context have found that uh, migrant was often associated with um you know black uh, black people who came to uk and often they weren't even you know but they were citizens, British citizens in that sense. So they weren't even in that sense foreigners, but they came here to, to, to the UK to work, for example, and they were often thought about as migrants. Um, and more recently, the term migrant is often associated with uh, people of a Muslim faith um, or, you know, uh, in the UK, people from Eastern Europe. So the way that these categories do are used to do racialized work is through what I call polysemic games. Um, so we move in and out of, you know, racialized usages of the term. Um, we uh, move from a technical definition to a sort of, you know, more situated racialized definition. And um, so you can convey many meanings through doing so that that you convey in subtext, in supposedly random examples, you know, that, that evoke a particular subject to this supposedly neutral category. And I think it is uh, this pronounced polysemy that really makes the categories uh, such a powerful tool. And I think I've actually written about, so the, the kind of, uh, you know, example I've just given you is from a paper actually that I've published previously, but it's also picked up in a book where I talked to my research participants in, you know, Nairobi, in The Hague, and I just asked them what their definition was of expatriate migrant. And, you know, the answers are so <laughs> widely differing. It, it was really, really fascinating, actually. So I think if you if you want to know more about that, you could also look at that um, article in the Journal of Ethnic Migration Studies I've published, but it also, I also covered in the book. Um, so I think um, if categories like expatriate and migrant are central, you know, to the racialized politics of migration today, um, it is through their conceptual multiplicity and malleability. So they don't neatly map onto racial categories and they would be a lot less useful if they did. It's because they're so flexible that they are so useful. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, sorry, that was a long answer again, but <laughs> I hope no, it gets was... there. Yeah, um, well, because one thing I think that is particularly interesting in your uh, research site uh, in Nairobi is that in Nairobi, one of the kind of ways that you're following the category of expatriate is through the organization Internations, um, which sort of sets itself up as uh, kind of a expat help community group thing. Um, talking about sort of malleable categories, Internations itself is a bit. Um, and obviously, when we think about sort of racialized categories and the politicization of migration, um, that's obviously really topical now. 
But that's also been true historically. And so I was really interested that you, one of the things you um, argue when you are following internations in Nairobi to understand the category expatriate um, is that internations, this very modern website app based thing, is, quote, rag picking in the ruins of empire to create its expatriate. So could you help us understand sort of how colonization, decolonization, empire fit into these ideas of expatriate even today? Yes, yes. Um, and you've picked one of my favorite quotes here. Um, so yes, internations has commodified, so to speak, this ubiquitous idea of an expatriate community. So wherever you go in the world, you'll find an internations community that you can join, where you can socialize, where you can you know, make professional contacts, where you can you know, join particular activities because you know, based on your interests. So it's really, really useful for people moving abroad. And internations does market itself as the biggest expatriate community. And that, of course, raises the question of who is the expatriate that they are trying to attract, you know, because they are a profit-orientated business. So they do want to attract people to join them, to pay the you know, membership fee um, in order to, you know, to make a profit, which is the ultimate goal. So I was interested, when I came to Nairobi, expatriate was actually a really difficult category to localize. And Internations was one of the few institutions and you know, organizations that I came across that explicitly marketed themselves to expatriates and so I joined and you know I met really lovely lovely people and um, it was really interesting and you know I can see how it is really helpful for people you know coming to a new town to join these sort of activities but as you mentioned you know the, the histories of empire and European empires and colonization and colonialism are really present in the book and I do trace the category expatriate from the moment of, of decolonization to today to show some of the ways that uh, imperialism and colonialism and the sort of relationships and inequalities that these uh, political systems created, how they live on today and how they live on today in the context of migration. And so internations wreck picking in the ruins of empire, um, I, I kind of use that term uh, in relation to a particular quote. And I think I just want to read out that quote, if that's okay, um, because I think it exemplifies a lot of what I want to talk about. Please. Yeah. So it's it's actually, um, I, I quoted in the fifth chapter of the book, and Internations on its website writes, We believe there's something unique about expats, a strength and spirit that drives us to move towards the unknown and embrace it. Like the explorers of the past and scientists of today, expats choose to go where things are unfamiliar, where they don't know what to expect. Experts are modern-day pioneers. Nothing symbolizes this pioneering spirit like the albatross. These birds travel long distances around the world, all while maintaining a special connection to their place of birth. Their life is a journey. Constantly on a move, albatrosses use their formidable wingspan to cross oceans and fly hours without rest. By design and spirit, albatrosses are explorers. During their long life, they cover millions of kilometers and see the world from a unique perspective, the perfect symbol for our community. So this is quite a, you know, eulogy. I mean, this is a really, you know, passionate account, really glorifying account of who expatriates are and what unites, you know, expatriates. And But what struck me immediately reading this quote is this reference to the past explorer, to the past pioneer. And these, of course, were imperial colonial figures, right? Even though 
colonialism and imperialism is absolutely absent. It's not mentioned in this text. And so the broader argument I'm making in the chapter, or one of them, is that the discourse of the expatriate re reinterprets privilege as achievement by rendering invisible the sort of structures, the you know, the international border system, the international inequalities within that movement happens. So our desire, you know, our privilege of being able to move, and I include myself here, becomes our achievement. And while structural privilege, you know, you know, most basic, basically the, the, the passport we hold, but also, you know, um, uh, cultural capital, social capital, economic capital, while these sort of structural privileges often remain unacknowledged in narrations of the international expat life, casual mobility, you know, going here and there, wherever we please, wherever we are driven to, become position as normal and as desirable and eventually as an achievement. So privileged access to mobility is not only a taken for granted entitlement here, but its exercise becomes an accomplishment or a position as an accomplishment. And so this quote really evokes this heroic image of the albatross, exemplifies, I think, par excellence, how the rhetorical constitution of the expatriate here not only presumes an entitlement to international mobility, but then imbues it with value. And by association with the albatross, experts become strong, they become driven and restless, they become individuals, you know, individualistic. And these qualities literally and figuratively then elevate them above the world and seem to explain their implicit right to the world. And so the very inclination of, you know, the expat to be to embrace the unknown justifies them doing so. Their desire becomes their right. And I, I want to quote Mimi Scheller here, who's done really amazing work on, on you know, inequality mobility and the sort of, um, you know, interarticulation of, of racism and mobility. And Mimi Scheller writes that the iconic masculinist figure of the explorer, the entrepreneur and the frontiersman require implicit others. And these implicit, implicit others who do not exercise that autonomous, self-directed mobility. And traditionally, some being women, children, slaves, servants, bounded workers, lazy, poor and wild natives. And that's really where I talked about the nation's rag picking in the ruins of empire. And I hear kind of meant the discursive, you know, a figurative ruins of empire um, to create its expatriates. So these kind of figures, social figures, categories, narrative discourses that once justified empire and imperial expansion and exploitation and colonialism and all of these sort of processes are now used um, to you know, create a heroic figure expatriate who seemingly you know, is this driven person um, you know, who, who moves across the world, um, but in the narration, the sort of inequalities that allow some people to do that and prevent others from doing it are rendered invisible. And so it recycles imperial, racialized, and gendered tropes, really, to put it, to put it um, you know, simply. So I think that's that's where I'm coming at. And that obviously is about discourse, right? It's about discursive justification of inequalities and rendering invisible certain inequalities um, to create certain subjectivities. And we cannot forget here, I think, that internations it's a business and they're trying to attract members and they're trying to attract well-heeled members. And by telling these people, oh my God, your structural privilege is really quite outrageous, they're probably less likely, you know, to sell their services. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not going to work so well, um, but it does provide a lot of material for you to analyze and help us understand. So that's helpful. <laughs> Thank you. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, kind of following on from this idea of trying to see how racial categories and migration categories sort of work in some ways together, um, this idea of the rag picking of empire, um, we've kind of touched on implicitly the impact that these sort of social expectations can have practically, right, in terms of sort of asylum policies, border policies, structural privileges of passports, that kind of thing. Um, but there's sort of wider uh, impacts as well in terms of what society thinks of, um, and even in some senses, how we study it. So could you tell us maybe um, if any anything else you want to uh, make us aware of in terms of the you're thinking on the impact and effect it has to have this sort of too narrow idea of an expat, whether that's particularly based on white racialization, whether that's sort of, as you said, well-heeled, um, the sort of lazy conflation of those two things. Um, what Can you maybe tell us a bit more about kind of those impacts in the past and currently? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think that I mean, I'm okay. There's there's a lot to answer here, but I'm just going to focus a little bit on history because the book does have quite a historical bend. And obviously, that was actually not intended originally when I started my research. It became more and more historical in a sense. And I, I do a bit of archival research, you know, in different archives. And I think one of the things that surprised me is that the discourse of the narrative often goes that. Um, in the past, though, when we talk about the late colonial past or the early independence period, you know, particular countries, there seems to be that easy conflation between whiteness and expatriates. So when you when you you know read the term expat or expatriate, more likely, in an account of late colonial like uh, you know British um, colonies, expatriate seems to by definition, um, you know, mean a white person. And I think that easy conflation of, of whiteness and expatriate status never worked, uh, not even in the past. And I think that's one of the things that surprised me. So to, to give you an example, really, so when I did archival research in, uh, in Kenya in the National Archives, I came across this um, controversy, this huge debate um, about uh, so-called uh, Asian expatriates, non-designated Asian expatriates, and that term was quite a mouthful. And so as I dug into that um, uh, controversy and that debate, uh, it took me to, to queue to the National Archives in the UK, which itself is telling, you know, where are these archival um, sources held nowadays and who gets to study them? Um, but that's that's a different story. But I, I came across this debate in the uh, transformation of uh, the colonial civil service, the colonial administration in Kenya and East Africa more generally, um, into a national civil service at the end of, of, of British uh, colonialism there. And what I found was this huge debate that I haven't really, um, you know, read about in any sort of secondary uh, research I've found. And this is not 
my area of expertise, right? Colonial, the colonial civil service, even colonial history is nothing I ever studied. So I had to do a lot of reading. Um, but what happened is that at the time, uh, you know, in the, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, as it became clear that Kenya would become independent a lot sooner than the British administration had, you know, hoped, if you may say so, um, the, the colonial civil service was still staffed in the traditional way. So you'd have white, you know, senior staff managing the service, so to speak. And then you'd have Asian uh, civil servants um, who were recruited from, you know, what is now India, Pakistan, uh, uh, South Asia more generally, um, or who were recruited from the Asian community in Kenya. Um, and then the majority of the service would be so-called um, African staff, right? And they, the British had failed, um, whether on purpose or not, to uh, what they called Africanize or localize the service. So they didn't have enough people trained um, or, you know, uh, educated enough, if you like, if you want to make that argument, to take over those, those roles of responsibility. And so it became necessary if the civil service was to continue to keep some of these white and Asian more senior staff on you know, post-independence to train up their successors. And in that context, the British <laughs> managed, really, and it was each debate, to define expatriate in such a way, really fine, I should say, because that category was different before, that it excluded Asian staff and really only included senior white staff. So they created, they created really a category expatriate for the post-colonial context that signified and encoded white male, and I should say male, privilege, because women were also included excluded from that category. And so it was at the end of colonialism that these post-colonial categories were produced that really encoded and reproduced, directly reproduced colonial inequalities. And in that chapter, I go into quite a bit of depth and detail, and it was, it was really a challenge to try and condense it down and not become too technical and read up on into all these documents, you know, and try to, to make a narrative out of it. But it was really fascinating because you could see the, in this particular case, you could see the direct translation of colonial into post-colonial inequalities. And these were racialized and classed and gendered inequalities. But then in the post-colonial period, they became articulated not in terms of race, you know. So in the 1940s, the discourse was still that, you know, and uh, this was uh, really explicitly racist, even if they denied it even at the time, but that, you know, white people are just more ready for responsibility and you know the quality of the work quote unquote of the African on average is just not as good and these are the sort of racist tropes you had and then over time these these sort of tropes became dropped and suddenly it was about attracting people from overseas who had to be paid extra to in, be induced to come to this you know really difficult workplace but then you only had to induce the people coming from Britain because the people coming from Asia you know they they would come willingly anyway so you, you had these different narratives who were suddenly deployed to kind of justify the same old inequalities. And I think that nowadays we need to understand these histories because if we just assume that in the past, you know, whiteness and a certain other status, such as expatriate status, mapped easily onto each other, we just assumed that whiteness, whiteness actually was an easy category, an existing category, and it wasn't. It was always contested. It was always difficult. Racism was always difficult to enact and to maintain and to justify. And I think that we need to understand these historical struggles in order to um, 
you think about the, the kind of uh, conditions we face today and think about the society we live in, but also think about the discourses that are you know, reproduced and reproduced um, to justify similar inequalities and, yeah, basically imagine mm. a better future. So. Yeah, that, that would be nice. <laughs> um, and I think that that kind of brings me nicely to my next question, which is that, um, as you said, obviously, in this book, there's um, a lot of examination of different definitions of expatriate and you listed a few of them earlier and one thing that kind of jumps out at them especially the sort of the official dictionary the un the labor law office of national statistics is that sometimes the kind of definition is about nationality but often it's about time and that seems to have kind of on the face of it nothing to do with gender or race or class or anything like that and yet you've just very um, helpfully explained uh, that all of these classed, racialized, gendered elements have been contested throughout the category. So how kind of, why do we have now this focus on the time and temporariness? How, what work is that doing to hide these other things? Um, It just seems like such an odd gap. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I really struggled with temporality um, and I think that uh, the the first thing to mention is that the expatriate in the US context historically was associated with a permanent form of emigration you know and it was those uh, you know the, the lost generation is a really is a really famous example it was those you know bohemian artists who were suspicious and you know um, unpatriotic who had left the US to go to um, you know live in Paris or um, live in Accra and Ghana you know um, Oh, that was a bit later, but still, who had left the US to live abroad semi-permanently, and they were considered expatriates. Um, and that had a certain sense of permanence. Um, and then nowadays, expatriate is, in the US, still more often associated with a permanent form of immigration, or potentially permanent, than elsewhere, I would say. But then if you look at the business context, the global business, multinational corporations, that's really where expatriate became um, used for temporary forms of migration. And I think it is that form of, of business migration, often it's managerial migration, so the, the migration of management, that has inspired a broader thinking about the categories page as uh, signifying a temporary form of mobility. So if we look at the history of multinational corporations, and I have done um, research in Royal Dutch Shell, and I've done um, research, of course, in international human resource management literature that sort of um, wrote initially about U.S. multinationals in a post-Second World War uh, context space and um, thought about these U.S. corporations internationalizing. In all of these corporations, you see that in the moment of decolonization, and Vinant um, calls it the racial break, the mid-century racial break, when um, there was a sort of interlocking um, struggles, anti-racist struggles, civil rights struggles in the US and the colonial movements, you know, um, that really destabilized white supremacy. And decolonization was a major challenge for multinational corporations. And I think that's also rendered invisible in, in many ways. But you had a company such or oh, multinational corporation such as Royal Dutch Shell, which really was a group of companies, you know, it's a, it's really a bit of a, a Byzantine structure, they called it. But Royal Dutch Shell was 
one of the biggest, if not biggest employer of, of labor, of staff called expatriates, of so-called expatriates throughout history. And expatriates are originally in Royal Dutch Shell in an imperial colonial context where privileged staff managers, white men, you know, who were sent abroad to colonies or to, you know, um, other contexts, uh, primarily in the global south, or what we now call the global south, to manage the interests of Royal Dutch Shell. And that was, of course, in line with the wider imperial and colonial labor hierarchies. That's just how, you know, that's how labor, uh, how empire was administered, and that's how business was done. And that's how, um, you know, uh, um, natural resources were exploited and put into the service of empire. So if you look at Royal Dutch Shell at the moment of, um, you know, in the 1950s, in a post-war moment, when it became clear that more and more countries are actually succeeding in gaining the independence, they were faced with a dilemma. And actually, Rochelle was one of the early companies in responding to it. So they realized that they were now facing not colonies, but independent states. And in independent states, you could not have permanent expatriate, so to speak, management, right? You'd have to involve local elites, at the very least, in a management of resource extraction and in the profit generation. And so what Royal Dutch Shell did is that it rethought its system of expatriation, its system of management. And what it, previously many expatriates for Royal Dutch Shell had moved, you know, across context. And of course, um, at that point, also we saw cheaper international travel and easier international and faster international travel. But what Shell did that it used to keep, you know, management staff in certain locales, often for their whole career. So expatriate staff in, in India, for example, would serve out their career in a particular region. And that made sense, right? They knew the context, they knew local um, elites, they often knew the language, you know, they, they were experienced. But then independence came and you couldn't do that anymore. So what happened is that staff are now moved around more temporarily. And you had now two groups of, of expatriate staff, so-called regional staff who were employed by local companies. So think about a Venezuelan being employed by a Venezuelan, you know, based company, uh, sorry, operating company, a shell company uh, being, let's say, moved to Mexico or to headquarters in The Hague for a term for a few years to learn the ropes and then being sent back. That's regional staff. And they might go on one or two expatriate assi assignments throughout their term throughout their career. But then you had international staff, and international staff were still primarily white men until the 1990s, recruited in the Netherlands and um, the UK and the rest of Europe to some extent, who were moved around the globe flexibly to manage business interests. And they would move with their families and stay in one particular locale for usually three to four years, and then they'd move on. But this group of highly socialized managers um, you know, 5,000, maybe around 5,000, really made up the, the managerial elites. Those are the ones that moved up in central group management. Those are the ones who knew each other, who were connected to each other, who lived in those really famous expat enclaves, you know, oil company towns, whose wives were friends, you know, whose wives organized social, social life. And these highly socialized managers who were very homogenous, you know, who shared an identity as shell men and shell wives, those were the real, you know, uh, uh, that's those were the seat of power, if you like. Those were the ones that had power. But you can see at how that at that moment of independence, the temporality of that sort of uh, you know racialized and class management and then management had to change. So what changed was not the type of people, the demographic 
of people who held power within Royal Dutch Shell. That was broadened to some extent. It was diversified a little, but at its core, it was reproduced. But these people now just had to move. Uh, you know, they had to move for shorter terms. They had to um, work with local elites rather than, you know, uh, just rule over them. So it was the changed political, geopolitical, international context which necessitated different temporalities of, of management and of movement. And um, yes, I think that's where, that's one of the histories that explain you some of the, the kind of temporalities of expatement movements that we think are normal today. And there's other stories to that and there's other histories to that, but that's one of the histories that I think that is really important to recognize when we think about the expatriate just as a temporary labor migrant and that's that. Mm. Yeah, I think a really important um, history to um, excavate, obviously for its own sake, but to really understand kind of where we're at now. So thank you for explaining that to us. And obviously there's loads more detail in the book for people who want to um, get into the nitty gritty of that. Um, as we come towards the end of the interview, I sort of have a, I, I suppose a inside question kind of many of us uh, listen many of our listeners I think to this will be in and around academia um, I certainly am I obviously you are um, so this isn't just something that impacts politics writ large um, there's also some kind of questions about how we study things and what literatures are we using and how are we using them and I admit as someone who's not a specialist in migration studies I was kind of surprised to realize the international human um, resource management uh, literature, the IHRM, uh, <laughs> the is yes, the mouthful is not part of migration studies because logically, uh, coming from history, I sort of would be like, well, okay, that must be a subset of it because aren't they looking at the sort of the same thing? Um, and yet, as you clearly talk about in the book, um, they're not part of migration studies. Uh, what? Why not? Should they be? <laughs> what does this, uh, at least from my perspective, somewhat artificial separation tell us? Oh, absolutely artificial. I agree with you. And um, thanks for asking that question. It's one of my, um, I think it's one of my favorite chapters, but it was also one of the most difficult ones to write. And it's maybe one of the ones I'm least satisfied with in, in some ways. But I think that's partly because I cared so much. If you think about the history of international human resource management as a discipline, and I think that really... That's really where my understanding of academic work as a socially situated practice, you know, comes in. Um, academic work is never outside society, right? And it, it's defined by social priorities, by social hierarchies and all of the like. So the history of international human resource management literature really points to the history of U.S., ascendancy, uh, post-war, corporate-driven U.S. dominance. And international human resource management really um, kind of emerged as a discipline alongside that to theorize the management of U.S. business abroad, to help. It saw itself as a strategic business partner to corporate management, you know, in managing its interests, its subsidiaries abroad. And so it was aligned very much with the imperial, you know, project, if you like, that was U.S. Uh, dominance. And it theorized um expatriate movement as something that was, you know, difficult. So it, of course, needed academics to study it, you know, uh, but as something that was ultimately beneficial for the whole world because expatriates would, um, you know, bring modern scientific management. And you can see all of these discourses of modernity, you know, come into the sort of supposedly neutral management literature. So 
this this discipline and recycles a lot of the colonial tropes, really, um, and imperial tropes to justify particular relationships within corporations and in the world. But that's the kind of intellectual history and trajectory of international human resource management literature. If you look at migration studies, it has a very different origin. And I mean, there's a much, there's a very complex, a very nuanced, you know, long history of migration studies. But if you look at the um, critique of methodological nationalism, that's been quite really, really influential in migration studies as a form of you know, disciplinary self-critique. It traces the ascendancy or the real success and growth of migration studies to the post-war period when nation states were maybe at the height of their power. And migration studies really helped kind of emerged in this context where immigrants were becoming the quintessential outsiders to the imagined nation, you know? So it was it was um, the role of migration studies to, uh, to study really these cultural outsiders, national outsiders, uh, racialized implicitly outsiders, and how to incorporate them and assimilate them, if you want to use that language, and that was a US term, or integrate them as, as is more commonly used today. And but also of course look at how they were discriminated against, you know. So you had you have different genealogies here of these literatures and you have different subjects at their core. At international human resource management was all about this privileged, you know, male, white manager and how to best utilize that manager. Um, in you know from the perspective of corporate headquarters and the migrant and migration studies and that's the argument partly i make in this chapter is that implicitly implicitly and collectively the migrant and migration studies used to be and often maintains a racialized classed subject as well and i'm not the only one saying that of course it's the global racialized poor who become visualized and studied as migrants and that already tells you to some extent why these disciplines you know really never met and that's a separation that's upheld of course it's it, there's a certain path dependency they work in different frameworks they have different aims as i just outlined different ambitions they speak to different audiences you know you've got national policy makers on the one side migration studies you've got he- corporate headquarters on the other side and you have different subjects and the interesting bit is that international human resource management literature recently in the last 10 20 years discovered migrants they were like oh my god Migrants are this new source of labor pool. <laughs> so it is absolutely interesting um, how the category migrant has been incorporated into international human resource management study as an other to the expatriate. So expatriates and self-initiated expatriates worth the value of the mobility, their human capital, you know, their talent, their ability, their drivenness becomes constituted against the migrant again. And that migrant is a racialized and class subject in its usual guise. And so there is a good you know, number of international human resource management scholars who, who explicitly work on you know, differentiating expatriates from migrants and say, this is not migration studies, these are not migrants we're studying, they're a whole different you know, category of person. And I, I talk about it in the chapter more, and migration studies also upholds that, decision, uh, that distinction. And I think that's maybe even more surprising because you would think that migration studies as a literature would be interested in how this other academic literature theorizes and constructs international mobility, right? And that brings us back to what we talked about in the beginning, how migration studies often is so focused on migrants, 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 and who we understand as migrants, but they don't always are, they aren't always as good at studying the sort of broader production of migration as a discursive frame and as a kind of site on which broader politics are carried out. And I think if you want to look at that broader politics of migration, you have to study 
business and you have to study corporations and you have to study economic literature that theorizes corporate mobility and look at how they construct reality and what they render invisible, you know, and what they what they construct. And so I think that sort of academic division of labor between these two disciplines upholds again you know, quite familiar inequalities um, where, um, you know, the mobility of, you know, the global racialized poor becomes constructed as a problem, as something that needs to be managed, as something that's overwhelming, as something that only happens in multitudes, you know, the floods of people arriving, the invasion of migrants, you know, they need to be managed if for their own good because, you know, they're naive, they don't know what to expect, they can't, you know, all of that sort of, mm. of, of really, like, heavily racialized language and on the other hand you've got this whole different you know this driven valuable you've got the global race for talent you've got these you know um you know highly skilled uh, transients and uh, again what comes out of what kind of easily falls out of view are the historical and kind of contemporary inequalities that have structured mobility in these different ways um, yeah very interesting critique lots to kind of get your teeth into um and uh, a very helpful contribution of the book that kind of ties it up quite nicely which leaves only my last question um you've recently as you said moved to the university of essex this book has been a while in the making um is there anything on that you're looking to work on now or next that you could maybe give us a sneak preview of yeah sure um i've actually been finishing this book while i was working on my next sort of big project and it's been quite a challenge sometimes to do both at the same time but what i'm looking at the moment so i, I do continue my research on on the categories page with and I'm looking at sort of um, doing a bit more archival research on the topic. But what I'm really looking at is um, citizenship by investment at the moment. So these are more popularly known as golden passport programs, golden visa programs. So the increasing um, use of of migration to attract wealthy people. And, uh, you know, if you want to put it in sort of provocative uh, everyday language, it's states selling their citizenship or their residence. And that has become highly politicized in the last, you know, 10 years or so. It's also become highly popular. It's more and more countries adopting it. Um, it's become a huge um, uh, struggle in the European Union between countries such as Malta, who ha- run such a program at the European Union itself. Um, the UK recently abolished um, its tier one investor visa, which I studied in quite some depth, which was a residence uh, program. Not a, they didn't sell citizenship, so to speak, but they offered an easy pathway to permanent residence or to residence and from then on to permanent residence and citizenship um, if someone was uh, you know had two million pounds to spare to invest that so to speak uh, in bond or share capital of of multinational corporations that are headquartered or that have an office in the UK and then after you know those years uh, five years uh, you can qualify for permanent residence you get your money back and you know here you are so uh, these kind of programs have become really politicized. And what I study are um, SVD the industry around it. So corporations, again, have been really, really influential in setting up these programs and lobbying governments to introduce them, um, in creating the market for them, marketing them. Um, so I am looking at the corporate sector behind mm-hmm. uh, or kind of around citizenship by investment in particular. 
fascinating. Well, if that becomes a book, uh, we'll have to have you back and you can tell us even more about it. Um, but until then, the book that we've been primarily discussing is titled Expatriate Following a Migration Category from Manchester University Press, just out in 2023. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really, really fun. And yeah, thanks for the excellent questions.